It's great to be with you this morning. Uh, I'm Matt. I'm going to open up God's Word from um, the book of John. So if you don't have a Bible, um, there should be some up the back, and you'll also have a sermon outline on the back of your service sheets. We're starting a new series in the lead-up to Christmas. Um, It's going to last four weeks, and it's seeking to answer the question, why Christmas? Why do we celebrate Christmas? Why have we celebrated Christmas for the last 2,000 years? Why is Christmas so important? And you can only answer that question when you've answered another question, which is, who is Christmas all about? Who is Jesus? And we're going to explore this question not just in a purely abstract and intellectual way. We want people to ask themselves, who is Jesus for me? Because if Jesus is who he claims to be, then that has radical implications for our lives. Now, we know a lot about Jesus, of course, from the Bible and especially from the Gospels, and we're going to focus on one of the four Gospels in this series. And as we know, the Gospels tell us about the the birth, life, and death of Jesus. Of course, it would probably be better to call the Gospels uh, extended crucifixion narratives uh, or crucifixion narratives with extended introductions. But we do learn a little bit about his birth, and so often at Christmas time, what we do is we go to Matthew's Gospel or, or typically Luke's Gospel because there we see some of the detail of Jesus' birth. It's less common to go to Mark's Gospel, because Mark's Gospel starts with Jesus' ministry. Now, those three Gospels, we tend to lump them together into a group that we call the Synoptic Gospels, because they line up with one another. They they have a a synchronicity to them. And a lot of the stories are told in order. Now, we're not going to look at those Gospels in this series. We're going to take a different approach. We're going to look at John's Gospel, Now, John's Gospel is very different to the Synoptics. It's much more cerebral. It's much more intellectual. It's much more contemplative. In fact, some people would even describe it as a little bit mystical. And that reflects the author's personality and sensibilities. Now, if you've ever been to churches which are a little bit more elaborate than the one we're in now, like in Italy or something like that, and if you see paintings which represent John, Typically, John is represented as an eagle. Now, eagles, we know, they're able to soar higher than any of the other birds, typically 10 or even 15,000 feet. But that's not the reason that John is typically represented as an eagle. The thing about an eagle is it's unlike any of the other creatures in that it can look directly at the sun and not be blinded. The eagle is the only creature that can do that. And that very much captures John's own experience because John was very close to Jesus. He was one of the 12 disciples and he was one of that inner group of three disciples of Peter, James and John. And in fact, um, he describes himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. So from what we can gather, John was actually Jesus' best friend. And as a result, he was able to see further and higher like an eagle. Now, as you read John's Gospel, you'll realise that he likes to engage with ideas and the life of the mind very thoroughly and rigorously. In fact, he's all about ideas. His goal is to convince you of the truth of an idea. Now, if you've got your Bible, um, keep it open at, at John 1, but if you wanted to flick across to John chapter 20, you'll see the main idea that he wants to convince you of. So John chapter 20, verse 31 He says, these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing him, 
you might have life in his name. So John wants you to accept an idea. And that's the idea that Jesus is the Christ or God's chosen one. That Jesus is actually the son of God himself. And he wants you to believe this idea because the consequences are enormous. Because if you believe this truth, he says here, you will live forever. And it won't be the kind of life that's marked by the suffering and pain that we know in this present existence. And so the goal of this series is to show who Christ is uh, from the opening section of John's Gospel. And so let's turn back to that, um, the start of John's Gospel, what we call the prologue, and we're going to read verses 1 to 5. But before we do that, let me pray once again as we open God's Word. Heavenly Father, help us now as we read your Word. Help us to understand it, to believe it, and to obey it. In Jesus' name, amen. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things that were made through him were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. The first thing you notice when you read John's Gospel is that Jesus' name isn't mentioned for quite a while. In fact, we don't see his name until verse 17. But it's obvious from the context who John is talking about, that he's talking about Jesus. Um, But he doesn't use one of Jesus' uh, more familiar names to describe him. He uses the term, the word. And you notice that this word... He mentions three times, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's really stressing that Jesus is the Word. And he says that this Word was there from the very beginning. John's Gospel begins at the beginning. Not at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, like Mark's Gospel. Not at the beginning of Jesus' life, like Matthew and Luke's Gospels. But at the very beginning of everything. Now, anyone familiar with the Old Testament will recognize that the phrase, in the beginning, is taken from the book of Genesis. And it's an interesting opening by John. Um, It doesn't seem very Christmassy at first glance. But it is, because the same word that created the world in the beginning has now entered the world in order to recreate it. Now, the term word that's used, that's rendered here in English, is actually the Greek term logos. And the term logos has a lot of purchase today. I don't know if any of you have seen any of Jordan Peterson's stuff, for example, but he loves talking about the logos. talks about the logos that is within each one of us. It's like this kind of animating, rational principle that enables human beings to to think. Um, Now, he wasn't the first person to come up with the idea. He borrowed it from Carl Jung, another famous psychologist. It's also an idea that's been reflected by philosophers like Friedrich Nietzsche, A whole bunch of philosophers have tapped into this idea that everyone has a logos within them, going way, way back to philosophy even before Jesus. So if you look at the group of philosophers called the Stoics, they talk about the logos, the animating principle of the universe that you find in each human being. And when Paul preaches to the Greeks in Athens in Acts chapter 17, he appeals to this same idea when he says that in God we live and move and have our being. 
Now, of course, we don't have to look outside the Bible to understand what the Logos is, although it's interesting the, the resonances that are there. But the Bible itself gives us plenty of clues as to what, or who rather, the Logos is. Now, in the creation account, um, which we just mentioned at the start of Genesis, we read that God created the world through a word. God created the world through a word. And later, biblical authors will riff off this idea. So if you look at Psalm 33, for example, verse 6, the psalmist says that by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. So the same word that created all of the universe created the star that actually eventually guided the wise men to that stable in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. Now, importantly, this, this logos or this word doesn't come to us merely as a proposition or a set of propositions. The word of God is personal. And this is a really important theme that builds up in the Old Testament, that the word of God is personal. If you look at the group of books in the Old Testament called the wisdom literature, it often features this character of um, wisdom and it's uh, personified like a person. You see it as lady wisdom, for example. So God's word or God's wisdom is actually not just a proposition but something personal. Indeed, this logos or this word is no less than God himself. And so what John is claiming right at the outset, he's not... He's not doing what Mark does and he's kind of, you know, building up the tension and, and he wants you to discover the truth for yourself. He's like, right from the outset, Jesus is God. The Word is God. Now notice that he didn't become God. He was God. He's quite different from the creatures. If you, there are actually different words for always was and becoming. So in verse 1, in describing Jesus, he uses was or the, the Greek word en, Whereas in verse 3, when he talks about creatures coming into existence, he uses another Greek word, ginomai. So whereas Jesus always was, everything else comes into being. So this underlines all the more that Jesus not just is God, but always was God. Now that brings us to verse 2. Now I won't say much about verse 2 because really it's just recapitulating what verse 1 says. So in verse 2 we read, He was in the beginning with God. So John's just impressing on our minds and on our hearts more deeply what's already been said in a summary. But in verse 3, John turns towards proving that Jesus is God and demonstrating his divinity. And so in verse 3, we read that all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. So John proves that Jesus is God from the works of creation. Whereas Jesus always existed, all creatures were made or came into being at a certain time. Jesus is prior to creation, and all of creation took place through Jesus. So here we see that creation is utterly dependent on Jesus. And to underline this point, John states the same truth positively and negatively. So po positively he says all things are made through him. And negatively, nothing was made that has been made. So nothing exists apart from Jesus. No one exists apart from Jesus. Of course, the flip side of all of this is that everything was made for Jesus. It doesn't just come from Jesus. Everything exists and is ordered towards Jesus. 
everything has a reason for existing. And that reason is Jesus. And that's one of the reasons we celebrate Christmas every year. Now, you don't need to acknowledge that for that to be true. It just is true, whether you acknowledge it or not. That every hair on your head, every leaf on the tree, every bird in the sky is there because God made it and he made it through Jesus and he made it for Jesus. Which is a great encouragement to us because it teaches us that everything that exists has a purpose. That we have a purpose. And that purpose has been revealed to us as God himself. Now in verse 4, John pivots from this idea of being and existence towards two other concepts, light and life. So in verse 4 we read, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. In Jesus was life. So, so Jesus isn't just responsible for creating everything. He's not just responsible for their being. He's also responsible for their ongoing life. In fact, Jesus himself will claim later on in John's Gospel, in John chapter 11, he'll say, I'm the resurrection and the life. Jesus is a source of life. John chapter 14, verse 6, he'll say, I am the way and the truth and the life. Jesus isn't just the one through whom and for whom all things were created. He's also the, th the person that keeps everything alive. So God didn't just create the world and leave it be. He didn't just, you know, set and forget. All creatures live through Jesus. Now, the flip side of this, if all creatures live through Jesus, it also stands to reason that all creatures live for Jesus and above all human beings who are created in the image of Jesus. Again, we don't just have a reason for existing. We have a reason for living. And that reason is Jesus. Now, again, you don't have to acknowledge that for that to be true. It just is true, whether people acknowledge it or not. We exist and we live, not just for our own sake, but for Jesus' sake. So Jesus is life, is the, the first metaphor we see in verse 4. And then Jesus is light. Jesus is light. And again, later on in John's Gospel, he's going to reaffirm that he himself is light. Um, in John chapter 8, he'll say, I am the light of the world. John chapter 8, verse 12. Now, light is interesting because light is closely connected with the doctrine of creation. On the first day, we know that God created light. He said, let there be light. And he separated the light from the darkness. Now, the first three days of creation were all about forming the earth, about creating a space for God's creatures to dwell. The next three days of creation are all about filling. Uh, and the first thing that God fills creation with are heavenly lights, the sun, the moon, the stars. So when it comes to forming and filling the earth, in each case, the first thing that God does is put light there. He forms by light, and then he fills with light. And so by calling Jesus the light of the world, there's a connection there between the creation of all things and Jesus as the source of all creation. Now, some people think it might sound a bit um, wacky to kind of reduce everything to light, but actually philosophers have done this for centuries. So, you know, Augustine, Anselm Bonaventure, John Calvin, Richard Baxter people have been connecting 
reality to light way back to the very beginning. And if you look at contemporary developments in quantum physics, it turns out that that's not so crazy, actually. And so by calling Jesus light, John is underlining that Jesus is the most basic principle of being and life in creatures. But of course, the idea of light also has an intellectual dimension. We often talk about the life of the mind or the light of the mind and the light of reason. We describe smart people as bright. We describe those who are not smart as dim. And so by calling Jesus light, John is recognising that Jesus is the source of our ability to think. If there were no Jesus, we wouldn't be able to think thoughts at all. And that's because Jesus is the wisdom of God. He's the word of God. And if human beings are to have any wisdom at all or have any word at all, then that has to participate in God's wisdom. All good things come from God. For us to know anything, it has to somehow participate in what God knows. Now, sometimes what we know is wrong and sometimes what we know is evil. But even in a weird way, those are kind of participations in God's knowledge. They're just a a deviation from that. But for anyone to have knowledge at all, Jesus needs to give them that capacity and to make that capacity work. Now, again, that's true whether, whether you happen to acknowledge it or not. <laughs> you know, you might think, you know, that you can think apart from God and apart from Jesus, but it's just not true. The flip side of this, of course, is that all of our thoughts actually have a purpose. Our thoughts have a purpose. And the purpose of our thought life is to lead us back to God, the source of all wisdom. Now, of course, this idea of light also has a moral dimension, which we see here in verse 5. In verse 5 we read, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, John's Gospel, uh, we see a close association between darkness and evil. From the outset, John sets up the events of Jesus' life as this battle between light and darkness. But it's not a battle of equals. We're not in a Star Wars film where kind of light and dark are equally poised and one could win and, the, you know, like it's a 50-50 game of chance. It's a battle in which Jesus is the decisive victor. You notice that? The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. The victory has been won. But there is darkness in the world. And one of the, the temptations that we have as people is to imagine that darkness is something that's just out there and I just need to keep the darkness out there at bay and stop it from infecting me. But we know, and John's Gospel teaches us, that darkness isn't just a problem out there, that darkness is a problem within each human being within each human mind and each human heart. It's something that's within all of us. It's a, it's a moral darkness. It's a spiritual darkness. Now, the problem with this kind of darkness is that you can't see the darkness. It's dark, and so you can't see it. There's a famous thought experiment that the philosopher Plato used, Plato's cave. Has anyone heard of Plato's cave? So it's a, it's a helpful illustration of this dynamic that's going on. So Plato... Imagine that the human race were like people who were chained in a dark cave, like prisoners, 
and they could see shadows being reflected on the cave wall and they thought that these shadows were reality. They didn't know that there were nefarious beings behind a rock who were using a fire and some puppets to cast the shadows onto the wall. And these nefarious beings were trying to fool people into thinking that they were in the real world and that everything was fine and they just needed to stay where they were in their chains. And Plato's solution to this problem is that people need to be unshackled. They need to realise that the, the shadows on the wall are just figments, that they're not real. And they need to leave the cave and go into the light of the sun and see the real world as it really is. But he recognised the problem with that is so when you've got people who have got used to living in a cave, even if they were to go into the, the light, they would be blinded by it and so they wouldn't be able to see but for the opposite reason. Now that thought experiment is a helpful illustration of what's going on here. That when you're in darkness, you don't realise that you're in darkness and you need to be brought into the light but you're not able to see the light because you've been living in darkness. Everyone begins life in darkness. They just don't know it. They don't acknowledge God as the source of being and light and life. They live as if God is irrelevant, or worse, they live as if God is evil. And that's a calamity because, as we've read, without God and without Jesus, we are nothing. Without Jesus, we cannot live. Without Jesus, we cannot know. And without Jesus, it's implied here, we cannot be good. And the other tragic thing is that people won't be able to claim innocence when the time comes. When the time comes for everyone to be judged, they won't be able to claim that they didn't know the danger. Everyone should know the danger because everyone has had a light of the mind put in them by Jesus. Everyone knows enough to know that there is a God and that he ought to be worshipped. But because of the darkness that people have inflicted on themselves, they suppress this truth. They suppress the truth about God and instead of worshipping God, they worship the things he's made. Even worse, they worship themselves. Christmas teaches us that that's not the end of the story. Christmas teaches us that in the midst of darkness, God has made it possible for people to go back into the light, to take possession of truth again. He sent Jesus, his son, into the world in order to bring people back to God. The light of the world stepped down into darkness to open our eyes so that we could see him. Now, some people will try and domesticate Jesus to make him smaller than he's claiming to be here. To say that he was just merely a great moral teacher or that he was merely a wise man. A lot of people can accept those claims but they cannot accept that Jesus was God. However, as John is showing us, that option's not open to us. The Bible presents Jesus as God. So either the Bible is mistaken or the claims in the Bible about Jesus have been maliciously concocted or the claims are true. Now, if the Bible's claims are true, then the ramifications are enormous. 
If the Bible's claims are true, then Jesus is God. And if he is God, then he is the source of all being, of all life, and all light. And so that makes Jesus the starting point for all of human endeavours, for all of philosophy, for all of metaphysics and epistemology and ethics. He's the starting point. And he's also the end point of all endeavours. He's the purpose of everything. He's the ultimate meaning in this world. He's the only way that we can make sense of our world because he is the author of our world. Now, many people struggle to find meaning in their lives and this problem seems to have become a lot more acute in the last couple of years in the wake of COVID-19. A lot of things have got a lot more difficult for most people. A lot of people find themselves asking, what am I accomplishing? What's it all for? Why should I get up in the morning? Now, there are different answers to that question. Um, maybe you should get up for beauty, to be beautiful, to project that beauty on the world. Well, if that's you, then that beauty will fade one day. Some people get up because of their careers, because they're important, they're indispensable. Well, one day you'll find out you are dispensable. One day you'll be replaced. Sometimes people get up for money, for riches, for wealth. But as we've discovered, sometimes we don't have as much money as we think we want or need. John is telling us that the only place that we can ultimately find meaning is in Jesus. Jesus is the Word of God. Jesus is the Logos. Jesus is the ultimate reason for being. He is the ultimate rationale for your life. Only when you accept Jesus can you see your life in proper perspective. Only then can you fulfill your God-given potential. If you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, is God's chosen one, then you will have eternal life. Your life will have eternal significance. And one day your life will be free from the sorrow and suffering that marks this dark earthly existence. Now, if you're sitting here and, and you haven't accepted Jesus and uh, maybe you're not ready to accept Jesus, well, that's, that's okay because it's a big deal to accept Jesus. It's not something that should be rushed. And so if that's you, let me encourage you to take the next three weeks to find out more about Jesus as we explore the rest of this prologue to John's Gospel. Um, let me encourage you to read ahead in the Gospel. If you know a Christian, then ask them to explain the Gospel to you. And let me encourage you to start talking to God about it too. Ask God to help you understand because, after all, he's the one who gave you the capacity to think. And he's the one who animates your capacity to think. So ask for his help to do that. Read the words of Jesus, observe the deeds of Jesus and then make up your mind about him. But maybe you are ready to receive Jesus and, and if you are ready, then that's something you should do straight away. And that's not complicated or difficult to do. All you have to do is pray to God, say something like, Dear God, I want to receive Jesus and recognize him as your chosen one. I want to recognize him as the author of my life. Help me to live for him. 
And when you pray that prayer, everything changes. And so it's important if you do pray that prayer to tell someone, tell a Christian, because then they'll tell you what to do next. Now, for those who do already believe in Jesus, our passage today is a remarkable encouragement that our story has a happy ending. Our lives have a happy ending. Darkness will not overcome the light. Ultimately, everything is going to be okay. Everything will be taken care of. I came across a quote this week which really resonated with me by the Dutch woman Corrie ten Boom. She was the woman who famously in occupied Netherlands sheltered Jews in her house and hid them from the Nazis. And she was interviewed about her experience and how she trusted God through the intense difficulty and suffering that she had to experience while she was trying to protect these people's lives. And um, she said to the person interviewing her that God doesn't have problems, only plans. God doesn't have problems, only plans. And I thought that's a great way to see things in God's perspective, that everything is going to be okay in the end, that the darkness has not overcome the light because Jesus has come to make everything right. And so for those who do believe in Jesus, our first task this morning is to more firmly believe that for ourselves, that everything is going to be all right because of Jesus. And the second task is then, of course, to share that with other people so they can enjoy the same thing. To finish, what I want to do is skip forward to John, uh, sorry, the book of 1 John, so this is the epistles that John wrote. So if you fast forward to 1 John, chapter 1, and you'll find that on page 1021. Now, while I read the first few verses here, I want you to notice the same principles that we've looked at today. Being, light, life. Keep them in your head. 1 John, chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. That which we have seen from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you eternal life, which was with the Father and made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you might have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So you notice the same themes that pop up in the prologue are here. And three times the Apostle John says that we're to proclaim this truth to others. So in verse 1, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. Verse 2, we proclaim to you eternal life. And verse 3, we proclaim to you what we've seen and heard. So proclamation is at the heart of our response to Jesus. And we can have confidence that when we proclaim this message, that our efforts will have some effect because Jesus is the one who put their capacity for thought in the first place. And Jesus, by his Holy Spirit, can transform their minds and their hearts to believe. So we can proclaim this message with confidence. Now, of course, that capacity for reason that people have 
that God-given capacity, that will help people so far. It will help people know that there is a God and that he is to be worshipped. But it won't help people get to the point where they discover that Jesus himself is God come into the world and that Jesus is the one who deals with their problem of darkness, of intellectual darkness and moral darkness. You can only get that if that's revealed to you. And so the reason we proclaim is to do that. We start from what people know about God and we point them towards Jesus. So as we finish, let's be encouraged that if we trust in Jesus, that we have a personal relationship with the one who is the source of being and light and life. We are in harmony with ultimate reality and God has given us the privilege of joining him in helping other people to become part of that harmony. Jesus is central to life and health and happiness here and in the hereafter. And it's our great privilege to be able to tell the world about that. And that's what we do Christmas by Christmas. Um, We tell a world that so desperately needs him. That's why we celebrate Christmas every year, because Jesus is God, and through him we exist and have life and light. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending Jesus into the world, the one through whom all things were made, the one who is life and light. Father, we pray that you would help us to trust that more firmly today, that you would help us to be convicted of the truth that the light has overcome the darkness and that everything is going to be okay in the end. And Father, we pray that you would help us to share this message with others so that they too might have fellowship with us and join in celebrating you and what you have done through our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.